the relative stability that we had for 70 years has basically gone out the window and we're in this period of what I call the, the new not normal. There'll be upsides and downsides and it's going to be very disconcerting. That's Axios chief financial correspondent Felix Salmon describing the lasting impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the economy. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line podcast. The public health emergency may be over, but Salmon argues in his new book, The Phoenix Economy, that its effects on how we live and work will be felt for decades to come. One of the symptoms of trauma is memory loss, right? We forget how bad it was and how different it was. We discussed the pandemic's impact on the labor market. The power dynamics between employers and employees, between labor and capital, were completely upended. And what COVID-19 has to do with millennials' obsession with cryptocurrency and NFTs. And suddenly there's this free money, which they can gamble with at exactly the same time as you have the NFT boom and the meme stock boom. Plus, we talked about the debt ceiling standoff in Washington. I don't know anyone who isn't an elected politician who thinks that the debt ceiling is a good idea. And what about the so-called mint the coin movement? The radical proposal that the U.S. should just mint a trillion dollar coin to save the country from default. Well, anything is better than default, obviously. And the platinum coin is awesome. And yes, on some level, it is printing money. I don't think that inflation is the reason to object to the platinum coin. The reason to object to the platinum coin is exactly that it's a gimmick and it kind of destroys this careful balance that we have in the three-branch system of government. Felix Salmon, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you so much. As of this week, the COVID public health emergency is officially over. That is, the emergency declaration issued by the Trump administration has now expired. It took three years and 100 days. And 1.1 million deaths. Right. Well, you write in your new book, The Phoenix Economy, that the lasting changes from the pandemic are still with us. And will be for a decade at least. What is the single most important change that will stay with us from the pandemic as it relates to the economy? Volatility. The way that we have to expect the unexpected, the way that we don't know what's happening next, the way that the relative stability that we had for 70 years between 1945 and 2015 has basically gone out the window. And we're in this period of what I call the, the new not normal, that there are Fat tails, if you know what that is, it, it, it basically means that unexpected low probability events happen very frequently. And they're going to be bad and they're going to be good. There'll be upsides and downsides and it's going to be very disconcerting. And how is that volatility an impact or a result of the pandemic and wasn't part of the economy previously? Think about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic Bank, right? What happened with them is that you had a bunch of pandemic money that came from the government, either from Congress or from the Federal Reserve, and it all wound up basically sloshing its way into California, into a bunch of bank accounts, and then immediately sloshing back out. If that money hadn't sloshed in and out, then those banks wouldn't have failed. So are you saying that... <sighs> Actually, the volatility that you predict will be part of the economy as a result of the pandemic is actually a result of government policies 
that are going to work their way through the system? Some of it, for sure. And some of it comes from just the behaviors that we learned in the pandemic. There was this crazy period during the winter of 2021 where we had meme stocks. I don't know if you remember that, where everyone was buying AMC or GameStop or something like that. And people suddenly looked at the stock market as a place where you could get rich quick and had the opportunity to make huge amounts of money in a really short amount of time. And that is not a way that people have really looked at the stock market since the 1920s. And that's now internalized among a whole generation of investors. And it's going to come back. You explain what you mean by the Phoenix economy when you write, quote, the Phoenix exists in largely unchanged form for hundreds of years before a spectacular inferno brings it to life to a brief end and creates the ashes from which the immortal creature is reborn. My thesis is that the COVID pandemic is one of those rare conflagrations that precipitates a whole new era. If your metaphor is correct, where are we now? We are, the the phoenix is just beginning to rise from the ashes of COVID and from the ashes of the Russian invasion of Ukraine as well, which is a bigger deal, obviously, in Europe. But we had 70 years of, broadly speaking, relative stability and peace in um, Europe, in the United States. We had wealth going up in a straight line-ish. You know, from 45 to 2015, That was a period of time when you could make long-term bets, where you could see where things were going, where the, you know, the phoenix could float around on the air currents to extend the metaphor a bit and not have to, you know, burn up in flames. And then we had this pandemic, which just stopped everything. The entire world came to a screeching halt. Everything broke. Supply chains broke. International borders went up. We couldn't even touch each other. And... We had to reinvent the economy on a much more regional and much more local level. And we had to reinvent how we worked and we had to reinvent how we thought about time and we had to reinvent how we thought about how we wanted to spend our own lives. You know, did we, if we hated our bosses, did we really want to spend these, this precious life working for some boss that we hated or did we, want, did we want to just quit our jobs and follow our dreams? And so all of this happened and we have a brand new world now that, I don't think most people really understand how different it is because one of the symptoms of trauma is memory loss, right? We forget how bad it was and how different it was. What about the lasting impact on our day-to-day life? So much going on there. So one thing is is that we care so much more about ourselves and about other people. I do think there's been a rise in compassion. Um, if you remember the Black Lives Matter marches of summer 2020, we had for the first time ever a majority of white Americans agreeing that there was systemic racism in this country and that was a problem. We looked at Prince Harry's memoir and said like, oh yeah, mental health is an issue we all dealt with over the course of the pandemic. We understand that this is important. That became the fastest selling nonfiction book in history. Um, We moved to where we wanted to move to and required our employers to adjust to us instead of us adjusting to our employers. The power dynamics between employers and employees, between labor and capital were completely upended. 
going back to the meme stocks, you know, the Reddit traders wound up being more powerful than the hedge fund managers. So there was a huge recalibration of power happening across all parts of the economy. Has it settled in yet? Were those lasting changes or were they just connected to that moment? There were absolutely lasting changes. It is inconceivable that someone buying a house now is not on some level going to want that house to have a private place where you can work. Even if you go into an office five days a week, you want some kind of a workspace in your house. That means that what we're doing is we're effectively subsidizing employers by creating workspace in our own homes. We want bigger homes, we want more fragmented homes, and we have created extra demand for residential space at the cost of demand for commercial space. So the entire real estate industry you know, has been reconfigured to go more into residential and away from commercial. That's going to have very long-term effects. And on the other end of the economic spectrum where people can't afford bigger homes and can't afford to work in home, how does it affect that? For those on the lower end of the economic spectrum, how are they impacted? They are impacted really profoundly. That we have created this world where if you don't have a place with a certain amount of privacy and a very strong internet connection, you are significantly disadvantaged in how you just relate to other humans. So much human interaction happens through screens now, and in private ways that you don't want it to happen, like with five brothers and sisters screaming, you know, running around you, that the need for space and for privacy at home has never been greater. And if you don't have that, that, the, that problem has become a much bigger problem. There's also people who just don't have the privilege of working at home, right? Absolutely. You said from 1945 until 2015, we had this period of massive expansion and economic growth. Did you mean to 2020 or did you mean 2015? I, I actually meant 2015. And the reason is that while the pandemic, which hit in 2020, really did break everything, you can date the beginning of what I call the new not normal to 2016, or at least that's where I kind of mentally started. Economically? No, more in the way that we lost the feeling that we had a shared society, that we all lived in the same society and could agree on the same truths. Because of the election of Donald Trump? Because of the election of Donald Trump and because of the Brexit vote in the UK. That that was basically a large section of both countries voting for chaos, voting against the sort of neoliberal order and saying, we want to break things. So it was a sort of the formal recognition of economic populism mainstreaming itself? Exactly. And and then that kind of chaos wound up getting magnified in the pandemic. Because if you want to break supply chains by electing a populist who's going to put up trade barriers with China, that's one thing. But if you have a pandemic that forces you to break all supply chains, whether you like it or not, that really changes the world. You spend a good portion of the book writing about millennials and how the pandemic influenced this generation of Americans who had previously been completely turned off by markets. And they frankly awakened to investing. What happened with millennials? Well, the reason they awakened to investing was was twofold. First of all, they didn't have any money before the pandemic, 
right? They had massive student loan debt. They weren't earning a lot of money. They were living paycheck to paycheck. If you're if you don't have a relatively decent savings account, then you shouldn't be investing in the stock market at all. And they weren't, and that's sensible. So then what happens in the pandemic is the stimulus checks. Suddenly, pretty much everyone in the country wakes up with $1,400 in their bank account, just magically magicked there by the government, and then it happens again. And suddenly there's this free money, which they can gamble with at exactly the same time as you have the NFT boom and the meme stock boom and the way of turning that money into $14,000. So all of that came together in the way for the millennials to be able to do something which was easier than ever, right? Which is they're sitting around at home, they're bored, they just need to download Robinhood on their phones and it makes it super easy. You click, 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 and you're invested. You're off to the races and it's fun and it's social, and you're talking to your friends, and if you lose money, that's almost as much fun as if you make money, and it becomes this kind of ironized thing. You and I probably think of investing as something very boring and sober that we need to do to secure our retirement or something like that, whereas for a whole new generation, it's become just a game to be played. There's a classical risk spectrum, which you acknowledge. On the one hand, there are risk-adverse individuals who buy risk-free assets, and the other end is entrepreneurs and venture capitalists who take high risks with the goal of massive reward. And you write that millennials are neither. Right. They are taking high risks with the goal of just having fun. And, you know, sometimes trying to stick it to the man, that was the um, the GameStop thing, right? You had this hedge fund manager in Florida who was short GameStop, and they were like, we'll just show him that the collective might of Reddit can make him lose a lot of money. And they did. Define NFTs for the non-millennial audience. NFTs are non-fungible tokens, or as I refer to them in the book, newfangled tulips. They're basically this pure gambling device that masquerades as a work of art. So to that point, you call millennials... You, know, you refer to them as this, quote, extremely online crowd. And you t- write about how they drove new investment paradigms because of internet buzz, which then leads to the rise of cryptocurrencies and NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Despite crypto frauds like FTX, you predict that crypto markets will recover. And yet, even this week, we saw another bankruptcy of a crypto exchange uh, in Bitrex. Where is the crypto market really headed? So the crypto market as a whole is headed south. Def- definitely don't read my book to say that like the price of Bitcoin is going to go up. Um, I have no idea where the price of Bitcoin is going to go. I have a long-standing bet with a venture capitalist, Ben Horowitz in California, saying that no one is actually going to use it. It has no real utility. So on that level, it will probably go down in value over the long term. What I was referring to in the book is more that there is always going to be this dream of overnight wealth, this dream of what Kevin Roos calls trampolines rather than ladders in terms of getting rich. And while the stock market is one way that people like to do that, the crypto market is just turbocharged. You can get these coins which moon overnight, they go to the moon, and then you can get leverage from places like FTX or even legitimate places, which will allow you to multiply your returns on those kind of coins. And right now is not a particularly feverish time in the crypto markets, but there will come a time when a few coins start 
coming back for whatever reason. And then everyone will be like, oh, this is my opportunity. I missed out last time. Um, I'm not going to miss out again. I'm going to get into that random coin. I have no idea what it is that will be the new flavor of the month. I got to get to news of the week. Um, the Treasury Department says the United States could default on its debt as soon as June 1st if the debt ceiling is not raised. President Biden has met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and congressional leaders this week, and there are some signs of progress. But you have called the debt ceiling, quote, profoundly stupid, self-defeating, and generally idiotic. Yeah. Care to expound? So I don't know anyone who isn't a elected politician who thinks that the debt ceiling is a good idea. It does weirdly have a level of popular support that I don't understand where that comes from. But I think where it comes from is politicians railing against there being too much debt and then kind of implying that the existence of a debt ceiling prevents us from having too much debt, which of course it doesn't. The thing that causes the debt is the spending bills that get passed by Congress, not some arbitrary debt ceiling. The debt ceiling, the only thing it does is it creates this volatility and this potential chaos and this potentially catastrophic default for absolutely no reason. And no other country has anything like it. And it should not exist. And it should be abolished. And one of the things that really pains me is that people are talking about all manner of circumventions here. You know, we've got the 14th Amendment this and the platinum coin that and the premium bond the other. And I'm like, you don't need any of that. You just get rid of this stupid ceiling, which not only is unconstitutional, but is also incredibly damaging to America's status in the world and could end up inadvertently causing an absolute global economic catastrophe. Do you get rid of it through a legislative action, in your view? You would have to. That's the only way you can. Yeah. So let's go back to some of the quote-unquote gimmicks, okay, or some of these <laughs> ideas. Um, obviously, the reason it becomes a political issue at the time when it is most dangerous to the economy is because the Congress seems incapable of negotiating spending in a way that is suitable to one party. It becomes a touchstone at the most dangerous time economically because spending simply isn't managed or cared for in a way that is suitable to Republicans when Republicans are mostly not in the presidency. I mean, you, you can think about it that way. And I think that's reasonable on some level. If you want to try and intellectualize it and say, well, this is why this happens. And the, may, the big debt ceiling fights always happen when there's a Democrat in the White House and the Republican House and that kind of thing. And, and there is like an urgency. I mean, I think on, so, on some level, while politically it has no moral authority, there is still a good argument for controlling spending. There's just no consistency around when those arguments are made. You, you can totally have debates about spending. And you can even have a debate you can even have a rule imposed by Congress saying that, you know, spending can't grow more than this or that, you know. There are lots of ways of constraining spending. A debt ceiling does not constrain spending. So that's the crux of the matter. That if what you're worried about is spending, then deal with spending. Once the spending has been passed, once we have to, by law, spend that money, 
then at that point, the deed is done. And putting in a debt ceiling, all that does is create a potential default. The only way to avoid that catastrophic default is to raise or abolish the debt ceiling. There is no way that you can use the debt ceiling to reduce spending because the spending decisions have already and been taken. Even, correct. So why isn't there more discussion around this moment of eliminating the debt ceiling? For reasons I do not understand, and you are you understand American politics much better than I do, politicians of both parties seem to like it. Joe Biden has said that he doesn't want to abolish it. I remember when Barack Obama once said that it was a good idea. They don't really explain why, but I guess it's just a way that they like fighting with each other and it's another thing to fight about. It, I have no idea. It would be a, it would be way more useful to have a productive budgeting and appropriation system that handled spending, not in a catastrophic economic um, instance like this. But but back to the gimmicks, because that's actually what I wanted to talk about. So um, you referenced this, that the debt limit may be unconstitutional. There's been discussion that the 14th Amendment could be employed in order to um, get around the debt ceiling. Uh, there's also talk of minting a trillion dollar coin these have been called gimmicks, but you recently said that you're down with both of these ideas. I think probably instead of defaulting. Well, anything is better than default, of course. obviously. And the, the platinum coin is awesome. I love it. It's so fun. No one wants to print a platinum coin worth a trillion dollars, right? No one thinks this is the first best solution to this problem. Walk me through how that would work. So it's actually really simple. The US Mint has the ability to print a coin of any size. It doesn't have to have very much platinum in it, but it's, it has to be made out of platinum for reasons which are far too boring to go into. The US Mint can print platinum coins of any denomination. And then assign any value to and it? And assign any value to it. And so you then print this coin, which is worth a trillion dollars. You give it to the Treasury. Treasury deposits that coin in its bank account at the New York Fed. The New York Fed then gives the Treasury a trillion dollars in return for this coin. And then they have a trillion dollars. And yes, on some level, it is printing money. I mean, it literally is printing money. And this is something that the modern monetary theorists say is not particularly bad. And, so, you know, and it is something that other economists worry about and say could be inflationary. There's not a huge amount of evidence either way, but it's. I don't think that inflation is the reason to object to the platinum coin. The reason to object to the platinum coin is exactly that it's a gimmick and it kind of destroys this this careful balance that we have in the three-branch system of government. Yeah, and what does it say about us if we have to take that kind of an extraordinary action because the Congress is unable to meet its responsibilities. It says that the Congress is has become incredibly dysfunctional and we can't trust them to do their job anymore. You know, it's all three branches of government in recent years have become much more chaotic and unpredictable and less sort of copper-bottomed and, you know, august institutions that they used to be. Um, but Congress in particular, and especially the Republicans in Congress, seem to be much more willing to be just complete chaos agents now than they ever used to be. And that's profoundly dangerous to the country. Um, well, on that we agree. Um, let me ask you about the implications to inflation um, and get your reaction to an economist from the Competitive Enterprise Institute who writes, quote, a trillion-dollar coin would cause inflation equivalent to a one-time $3,000 tax on every American. There would be small price increases on everything, 
as well as an increase in nominal interest rates, which would distort investment and business decisions. There would be ripple effects in the housing and auto markets, which depend heavily on financing. In other words, there's no way to get around inflation if you were to print a trillion-dollar coin. Your reaction? This, this is nonsense. Why? Because the only difference between um, printing a trillion dollars and borrowing a trillion dollars is that if you borrow a trillion dollars, you need to pay interest on it. And if you print a trillion dollars, you don't. And, you know, that interest winds up going into the economy and getting spent in one way or another. And so there is a pretty strong case to be made that borrowing a trillion dollars is actually more inflationary than printing a trillion dollars. What is the difference then than the $5 trillion that was spent on the economy during COVID? Okay, so again, in the, with the $5 trillion of stimulus that we saw over the course of the COVID crisis, the thing that caused inflation, insofar as that was inflationary, that was because the amount of money in the economy, the $5 trillion, increased the amount of money in going into the economy greater than the capacity that the economy had to absorb it, right? And, and that was the problem. All we're doing by printing this hypothetical platinum coin is spending the same amount of money that we would spend anyway, right? This spending, as we have said, is already in law. It's certain we know about it, right? So the amount of government spending doesn't change either way. If the amount of government spending doesn't change either way, the amount of inflation as a result of government spending doesn't change. So if printing money to pay our bills doesn't cause inflation... Why wouldn't we be printing money to pay for all of our bills and all of our spending, as the modern monetary theorists argue? We could. We haven't tried it. And do you give credence to that theory? I do. I, I, I think there is a reasonable argument to be made that that would actually be less inflationary. Now, it's very hard to find a country that has tried it. So it's very hard to know. But in principle, if we're spending this spending anyway, which we are, right, the, that spending is going into the economy, that spending is stimulating the economy, that spending may or may not cause inflation. But it's the spending that causes the inflation, not the way that it's funded. If you fund it by borrowing money in the bond market, then all you're doing is you're creating a new stream of interest payments that are also going into the economy. So in principle, that uh, the margin should be even more inflationary. So would you argue for printing $30 trillion and paying the entire debt of the country? I, I don't think it's important to pay down the national debt at all. It's perfectly fine where it is. And as the economy grows... At 100% of GDP, is it perfectly fine? Or at 120% of GDP, is it perfectly fine? Well, I mean, so that's where it is right now, right? Yeah. If it stays at that dollar level and then GDP grows, then it will shrink naturally as a percentage of GDP. And that's what happened after the Second World War. You know, we had debt of roughly this level as a percentage of GDP, and then GDP grew, and debt didn't grow as fast as GDP, and so the debt-to-GDP ratio went down. So do you, ideally, would you prefer a smaller debt-to-GDP ratio? Yes. What's ideal for you? Well, famously, the, the Maastricht criteria when all of the countries of Europe were getting together and saying, like, let's all agree on a good debt-to-GDP ratio, they came up with 60%. That would be nice. <laughs> okay. Um, the Consumer Price Index shows prices rose 0.4% in April. Um, but the annual rate of inflation is still high. It's 4.9%, but it has declined for the 10th straight month. Uh, 
Is this a cool down or is inflation the new normal? Both. We are very gratifyingly seeing inflation come down very quickly from where it was. Remember when it was over 8%, you know, 9%. And now we're down to 4.9 and falling. And that's good. And that's also kind of the easy bit. We've had falling gas prices. Everyone's seen that. Um, we, we're beginning to see falling house prices. So that is a huge part of inflation. Those things are really going to help us keep inflation falling. But the last bit, right, that last three percentage points from 4.9 to 2, which is the Fed's target, is going to be much harder than those first five percentage points from you know, 9 to 4. So inflation is coming down, but it's not coming down as fast as the Fed would like. And the next bit of trying to bring it down is going to be tough, especially since it looks as though the Fed has stopped raising rates. So that isn't going to be really pushing inflation down either. You think the Fed has stopped raising rates? For the time being. That, that's the message they've been sending. If this week's inflation print had been much higher, if it had been 0.6% rather than 0.4%, then maybe people might start thinking the Fed might hike another 25 basis points. But given where it was, given that it was actually lower than people expected, the Fed is, has made it pretty clear that they're going to try and let the current high rates do their work rather than keep on pushing them higher. Um, you write about the federal government's robust fiscal response in COVID and its impact on income inequality, um, even positive impact on, inc positive, on yeah. income inequality. But you've also been critical of some of the Biden administration's spending as pushing an agenda beyond COVID emergency I spending. Mean, they definitely used the cover of COVID to try and push this quasi-Green New Deal, which, you know, I think the Green New Deal sounded like a good idea, but it definitely wasn't a COVID. It was an emergency. I, yeah. And that's why I didn't say you're critical of spending. <laughs> I said you're critical of them calling it emergency COVID spending beyond the agenda. Um, but did that level of spending, and I think we got at this in the previous question, but let me just restate it. Did that level of spending outside of the crisis do more harm than good with respect to inflation? The degree to which the current inflationary environment was caused by Joe Biden's fiscal policy is a totally unanswerable question. There was a lot of really entrenched economic just facts on the ground that Joe Biden had no control over. Joe Biden had no control over the effect of you know, Russia invading Ukraine right? Economically speaking. Um, the massive recalibration of how we live that we talked about in terms of people needing more space in their homes, which drove house prices up enormously, was something that Joe Biden really didn't have any control over. Those house prices and rents are a huge proportion of the inflation figures. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, at the margin, everything makes a difference a little bit. We don't know how much. And the one thing that the Biden administration was always very clear about was they said, look, there, there are risks of doing too much. There are also risks of doing too little. And we are going to err on the side of doing too much. And maybe they erred on the side of doing too much, but that was a risk they knew they were taking and they reckoned, and I think there's a reasonable argument for this, that us having to deal with inflation right now is a much smaller problem than us having a major, you know, 
replay of the Great Recession that we saw, which ran from 2008 to 2012, mm -hmm. something like that. And the jobs just never recovered and the economy took forever to recover. And it was just painful for year after year after year. This kind of bounce back, which was much stronger and much faster than anyone expected, has got to be preferable to, do, to, to that. Like the 2020 recession was really deep, really scary. And we bounced out of it incredibly quickly. And because of that, it was much less harmful than the 2008 recession. Okay, the job market continues to exceed economist expectations. Last month, the economy added 253,000 jobs and unemployment declined to 3.4%. That's the lowest on record since 1969, or it matches that the lowest since 1969. And black unemployment hit the lowest rate on record ever. How do you explain this? One is just awesomely good news. And it is actually part of the effects of that fiscal policy that we were talking about. That government spending fed into the economy in a bunch of different ways and created a bunch of employment. Um, so all of that, all of those new jobs, we've had over a million new jobs so far this year alone, are, you know, people spending money and being optimistic about the economy. And that's good. There's also in terms of the unemployment rate, because there are two different surveys here, right? One is how many jobs are being created, and the other one is how, what's the proportion of people who are unemployed. The way the unemployment rate is measured is against is basically saying, are you actively looking for work and not being able to find a job? And most people who don't have jobs aren't actively looking for work right now. They're voluntarily unemployed, and that doesn't count towards unemployment. If you quit your job during COVID because you were sick of it and you have enough money to live on and you're fine, you don't count into those unemployment figures. So those unemployment figures are low because people are happy with their lives. The You're getting at um, the low unemployment and increasing labor force participation that has continued um, means there's still a lot of job vacancies. 9.6 million in March. How do you explain... I mean, I think this is what you're getting at, but how do you explain this given the high number of people entering the workforce and being hired? In other words, why are employers struggling to find workers? Well, firstly, there's not actually a high number of people entering the workforce. The millennials were the big demographic bump in terms of lots of people entering the workforce at once. They're gone. They're in. We're now in Gen Z entering the workforce, and Gen Z is smaller than the millennials. Um, and the boomers are retiring. Um, every day, more boomers retire. Mm -hmm. And so they're leaving the workforce. They need to be replaced. Gen Z is, you know, big enough to replace them, but not that big. So, and, what, and the other huge thing that happened during the pandemic, which people forget, is immigration, legal immigration, fell off a cliff. And this country has always relied on legal immigration to fit, to fill jobs. You know, I'm an immigrant. And... That is much rarer now than it used to be. Legal immigration and illegal immigration. And have illegal immigration, yeah. yeah. And that's also come down enormously. Well, so, I mean, how much has illegal immigration actually impacted labor supply? Um, in Texas and California, it's absolutely massive. If you run a farm in California and you need to find workers, it's so much harder than it ever was because... Those people just 
that border went up for during COVID for obvious reasons. No one wanted to move anywhere. But even after COVID, um, there was just a huge amount of political um, consensus, let's say, that this border between California and Mexico, which always for decades, for centuries, was extremely porous and people would move back and forth. And yes, it was an international line, but no one really cared very much, suddenly had to become this like super hard big wall. And that had deleterious effects on the Californian labor market, on the Texas labor market, and on the American labor market. Like we need to be able to, you know, humans who have great skills need to be able to move to places where those skills can be put to use. I mean, has there been any attempt? I mean, have you looked at the attempt to quantify the effect of the dampening of illegal immigration on the tightness of the labor market? I've seen a couple of papers. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. But yes, absolutely in certainly in Texas and California, but broadly in America, it's significant. You write that one thing Republicans and Democrats agreed on during the pandemic is to give people money. Um, you also point out that giving people money is, in fact, a sort of conservative economic libertarian idea, going back to economist Milton Friedman who proposed a negative income tax. And he did so on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. Wouldn't it follow that your proposal for a negative income tax might actually create a larger uh, class of uh, indolent and, uh, 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 and unemployed than existing programs, or certainly than ideal programs? But first of all, you better, you'd better uh, explain your negative income yes. tax because it's, it's frequently misunderstood. Yes, it certainly is. The, uh, the proposal for a negative income tax is a proposal to help poor people by giving them money, which is what they need, rather than as now, by requiring them to come before a governmental official, detail all their assets and their liabilities, and be told that you may spend X dollars on rent, Y dollars on food, etc., and then be given a handout. The idea of the negative income tax is to treat people who are poor in the same way as we treat people who are rich. Both groups would have to file income tax returns, and both groups would be treated in parallel way. So would Milton Friedman have liked the COVID stimulus checks? Would Milton Friedman have liked the COVID stimulus? Probably. I think one of the things that we learned in 2020 was that when a major emergency hits, like COVID, suddenly both sides of the aisle can come together to agree on something like this, that in normal times would be impossible. And I think Milton Friedman would have been definitely among the majority there, given that virtually all Republicans and virtually all Democrats agreed with it. He wouldn't have been off to one side. But he even makes an intellectual argument for giving money to people. So his, his argument for the negative income tax, which is quite compelling, is not just in times of emergency. He's saying what poor people need is money. And this is one way of doing it. Nowadays, it has a new name. It's called the universal basic income. Yep. Um, in large chunks of the developing world, it's called unconditional cash transfers. But however you call it, it just has an intuitive strength to it, which is individuals, adults, know better than anyone else what they need to spend money on. And so just give them the money and it will get put to where it needs to go. There is this weirdly sort of paternalistic idea that, oh, they'll just spend it on cigarettes and booze, but that 
never happens. Empirically, that's just not the case. Well, that's Buckley's argument, that perhaps you're creating a disincentive to work. Absolutely. And this is ex ante, like in theory, this is definitely a potential problem with unconditional cash transfers. Um, But we have huge amounts of evidence from around the world, from Finland, from Uganda, from Kenya, from Alaska, which, by the way, has had unconditional cash transfers for decades. And in all of these places, we see that the cash really helps the poor and they spend it on things they really need, not on indolence. ChatGPT, OpenAI's chatbot, uh, reached 100 million users within two months of its release, far faster than TikTok, which took nine months, or Instagram, which took 30 months. Tech giants and startups are investing heavily in the area. And after experimenting with ChatGPT, you concluded that it successfully passed the Turing test. By convincingly at least sounding human and providing insightful answers, do you think, I mean, what is the chance, Felix, that the rise of generative AI could be even more transformative than the pandemic in terms of creating an entirely new era? So the thesis of my book is we have to expect the unexpected and the new not normal is going to see unexpected upsides coming out of nowhere and unexpected downsides coming out of nowhere. AI could be one, it could be the other, it could be neither. My journalistic skepticism kicks in at the point at where I say, probably neither. You know, it's probably nothing. Is it possible that it will rise up and kill us all like Skynet, you know, that is possible. Is it possible that it will transform human productivity and we will suddenly become, you know, bionic humans because we're all powered by AI? That is possible. I suspect that that won't be the case because certainly the flavor of AI that we have right now, which is powered by large language models, it basically just, it's a parlor trick, right? It makes a computer produce prose, which is the kind of thing that someone would say if they were, you know, writing in English. And that's a clever parlor trick, but it's less useful on a broad level than you might think. And it's certainly not what I consider to be intelligence. It's not real intelligence. Um, Other parts of AI research are looking into non-LLM related AI. And maybe one of the weird things about AI is that it kind of goes nowhere for decades and then suddenly some brand new breakthrough happens. So there could be another breakthrough tomorrow or it could take another decade, who knows. Um, But it's definitely one of those things which is going to, which has the potential to create massive volatility and change in the economy at some point. Um, I would say that like the number of users of ChatGPT is not directly comparable to the number of users of TikTok or Instagram, because TikTok and Instagram, once you start using them, you use them every day. Yeah. Most of us who signed up for ChatGPT, we were like, this sounds interesting. I'll sign up. I'll try it three times and then I'll stop. You know, people aren't, the vast majority of people I know aren't using it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the best way to harness the risks associated with it, with AI, not ChatGPT? So there are a bunch of congressional committees looking at this. There's a bunch of, um, you know, Silicon Valley graybeards who have ideas about this. A lot of people are worried and they're saying like, on the one hand, we can't let China run away with this. But on the other hand, we need to, you know, make sure that AI doesn't run off ahead of us. And 
at the moment, it's all very theoretical. One of the proposals out there is we just stop any R&D and AI and just stop trying to make it better because we don't know the risks involved. That's frankly unrealistic. I, you know, Even if it was a good idea, it's not going to happen. So the question then becomes, is there a next best thing? And I think some degree of regulation is probably sensible. But I've been looking at how Congress has tried and failed to regulate the crypto markets for the past 10 years. And if they can't do that, I very much doubt they're going to be able to effectively regulate AI. Or the banks. So let me go to the bank failures. Um, let me ask you about the recent bank failures and how they're different from 2008. Um, recently, we've seen the spate of smaller banks. Um, and the system has been capable of absorbing the losses. And you have noted and pointed out that if you're a depositor, you're fine. Depositors have been taken care of. But is there any case in which depositors... If, if there are more and more banks that crash, there just simply won't be enough support to replenish the coffers of all the depositors. No, you do not need to worry about that. There is literally no case where that is going to be the case. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which insures the deposits in the, in the banks, has... 30-odd billion dollars, I, I, can't, I can't remember the actual number, but has more than enough money to come in and insure the deposits. But more to the point, it is backed by the full faith and credit of the US government, which means that even if it completely runs out of money, the government will come in and make sure that everyone is kept whole. How do you understand the failure of these banks in relation to the 2008 global financial crisis? They couldn't be further apart. They, they are completely unrelated. What we had in 2008 was a credit crisis. We had banks who made a bunch of loans and those loans went bad. And for a bank, a loan is your asset. It is what you own. And if you thought that loan was worth $100 and it turns out to be worth $0, then you are insolvent and you collapse. And that is what we saw in 2008 and in subsequent years, we had over 500 banks collapse, mostly because they made really bad loans, often subprime mortgages, right? In the recent spate of bank collapses, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank, Signature Bank, even Silvergate, none of the loans went bad. Their loans were fine. Their credit quality is high. The only thing they failed with was, it was their interest rate management. But they were making good loans and... So long as they could hold those loans to maturity, they were going to be fine. And they expected and intended to hold those loans to maturity. But then there was this big deposit outflow, which meant they had to sell them and various problems arose and they ended up failing and their shareholders were wiped out. But that's okay. Shareholders of banks know that banks are risky and they can lose their money. Depositors are what matter. Depositors were fine. And there is no credit crisis Credit quality is incredibly high. Mortgage credit quality in particular, at least outside commercial mortgages, is higher than ever. Well, what about the um, Dodd-Frank reforms that then were reformed again in 2018 and then changed capital requirements for small and mid-sized banks? Specifically the mid-sized banks, yeah. That perhaps played a role if you listen to some members of the banking committee in the Senate um, in this collapse. Yeah. So Silicon Valley Bank effectively 
availed itself of later regulation in the wake of these 2018 rules. And there is an argument to be made that if they had been more heavily regulated, then they wouldn't have failed. Do you agree with that? I don't think it was the capital requirements. I think that if you look at where their regulatory capital was when they failed, they were perfectly well capitalized. So was First Republic, because that's all based on you're holding these loans to maturity. Um, what really failed was that their principal regulator, who was the San Francisco Fed, kept on saying, you should do something about this. And they kept on saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to do something about this. And then they never did. And the regulators never really forced them to make the requisite changes. But ultimately, how much damage was done here? How much damage was done to the economy, to depositors, to anyone who really matters by the failure of these banks? It did cause a certain amount of loss of faith in the banking sector as a whole, and that's bad. But the actual bank failures themselves are not damaging in the way that bank failures in 2008 were. And loss of faith in the Fed as well. And this is a big problem, that people have just lost their faith in the Fed, they've lost their faith in the banking system, and this whole debt limit fiasco is making them lose their faith, faith in the dollar. And this is just a symptom of the broader loss of faith in institutions everywhere and of civic institutions. And that is really problematic. Um, you've noted that there are polls, in particular YouGov poll, which happens every week about the public's um, attitude about the economy. Um, you've noted that the general public believes the economy is in worse shape than it actually is. And many Americans believe that we're in a recession, even though we're not. The economy is still growing. The job market is still strong. Wages are rising and inflation may be cooling. It is cooling. Why is there so much public pessimism? You know what? That's what I wanted to ask you, Margaret. That's such an incredibly good question. For the past two and a half years, a majority of the population has said, we are in a recession right now. If you ask public opinion, we have been in recession for the past two and a half years. We were actually in recession for about six weeks in March 2020, and then we weren't. But it's hard for people to update that impression of things are really bad. And remember that we had two years of first the Trump administration and then the Biden administration saying, there is a major COVID crisis, things are really bad, we need to fix this thing that is really bad. And maybe if you just hear that all the time, you take that to mean we're in a recession. Then inflation hits. Do most Americans really understand the difference between inflation and recession? Probably not. So you see inflation, you think, well, that's the recession. Is there ever a circumstance as a financial journalist in history where negative sentiment about the economy can become a self-fulfilling prophecy? It's it's the only thing that causes recessions. I mean, that's not true. You know, subprime mortgages can cause recessions. <laughs> um, OPEC, you know, oil price hikes can cause recessions. But really, an economy is just how much people feel comfortable spending. And right now, the US consumer feels comfortable spending a lot of money. We are seeing, my favorite data point right now is the cheapest flight you can find this summer to go from New York to Paris is $1,800 in coach, which is crazy, but people are happy to pay it. People are happy to pay astonishing prices to go to Disney World, to eat out at restaurants, all of these experiences that are resurging in this kind of YOLO feeling that we have of like, you know, we have to seize the day and enjoy our lives while we can is causing 
prices to rise, but also causing the economy to continue to grow and making corporate profits go up and everyone is happy, right? So if the US public, which believes that we're in a recession, actually instantiates that belief by pulling back on their spending, that would end up causing a recession. They just haven't done that yet. Is it a bubble? No. No, it's entirely... It, it, we could continue on like this indefinitely. It's the Phoenix economy. It's the Phoenix economy. Felix Salmon, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. 